1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to tell you that we have Eric Schneider on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Smack, Heroin and the American City. When I got to college in the early 1980s, I was told by the students already there, whom I much admired, that drugs were cool and music was cool and drug music was cool. And the coolest of the cool, where I went to school, was the band The Velvet Underground. And they did heroin and wrote songs about heroin, at least one that I recall I think called heroin. And I listened to this song many, many times. And although I never did heroin, I thought of these people as a kind of model for the way I wanted to live. They had a kind of nonchalance uh, and a kind of intensity as well. I never really understood the association between drug bands like the Velvet Underground, and one might also mention Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, and there are a whole host of them and heroin until I read Eric Schneider's book. Interestingly, it wasn't the first time there was an association between heroin and a musical subculture. The first time was bebop in the 1940s, as Eric points out. And he points out a lot of other things about the origins of heroin use, its transmission to the United States, the way it flourished, the way it ebbed and flowed, the way the government fought it, the way it was picked up by various cultural icons, and the way it was cast away by them as well. Today, heroin use has fallen out of fashion. People use other drugs. And he also talks a lot about the cost of heroin use, which has been a really very significant. I really enjoyed talking to Eric today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So, without further ado, here it is. Hi, Eric. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm terrific. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Today, we're talking with Eric Schneider about his wonderful new book, Smack: Heroin and the American City. I was before we begin talking about the book, I wondered if you could do us the favor of telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker, which. Um, uh, and I find myself constantly drawn back to the city of my birth um, in terms of my research and writing. Uh, the I went to high school in, in the South Bronx, uh, the uh, Cardinal Hayes Memorial High School for boys. Uh, And I like to astound my students by telling them that despite the fact that I more or less uh, grew up in Manhattan, I didn't know any Jews until I went to graduate school. Uh, New York is such a parochial place. Everybody I knew was either Irish, Italian, German, Catholic, or if not Catholic, you know there were I think maybe one or two Protestants on my block, but that was about it. That's right. That's
1: I'm sorry. Insular. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's very interesting though because I, I had kind of the opposite experience. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, where people think it's, it's entirely homogenous. And and one of my best friends growing up was Rob Cohen, and I lived two blocks from Temple Emmanuel. <laughs> So there you have it. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt.
0: No, no. It's so I I, I went all through Catholic, uh, you know, uh, grammar school, high school. I went to Fordham University, a Catholic um, college, but I became fascinated with the history of cities. And so when I when I decided to. Uh, go to graduate school, I decided what I really wanted to do was study cities, and uh, I wanted to work with the premier urbanist of his generation, who was Sam Warner, who was had just moved from the University of Michigan to Boston University, so I, I got my PhD at, at Boston University, mm-hmm. and my first book was uh, a revision of my dissertation, A Study of Juvenile Delinquency, and institutions for delinquents in, in Boston. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm, I see. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write uh, this book about heroin. This project,
0: I I would say that my, uh, my career is largely accidental in nature.
1: (laughs) You and me Uh, both.
0: (laughs) My, uh, my, book previous to this was a uh, History of Street Gangs in, in New York City that was inspired by reading an obituary in the New York Times of, uh, of a guy called the Cape Man, uh, Salvador Agron who um, was imprisoned, actually initially sentenced to death at age of 15 for killing two kids in a playground gang fight. And in Doing the work on that, um, I interviewed a number of former gang members. I interviewed uh, street club workers, basically young men who were hired to go out and make contact with gangs and uh, steer them in more pro-social directions. And what I heard again and again from people was that, yes, gangs were definitely a problem. And this is the the Jets and Sharks era, if you Mm -hmm. will, the 1950s and 60s before gangs acquired all of the armaments and things that they got later. And uh, they said, yeah, gangs were a problem. People got maimed or, or killed. But if you really want to understand what destroyed inner city neighborhoods in the 1950s and 60s, you need to understand heroin. Mm -hmm. And when I began to look, uh, I found that there were a lot of social science studies of heroin that were produced in the 50s and 60s, but, of course, did not look at heroin over time. Um, and historians who had looked at this topic had focused mostly on medical and scientific work. They were themselves historians of medicine uh, and they were they were interested in a completely different set of questions than the ones that I became interested in namely how did how did um uh, ordinary people respond to heroin. What was the impact on city life? Uh, those kinds of questions medical historians aren't interested in, and so no one had really looked at heroin. So it was it was just kind of a, I became hooked on it, if you will. Uh, it was sort of a natural
1: progression from my my last project. Mm-hmm, I see. Well, let's begin talking about the book. I have a preliminary question uh, that. Um, the answer to which is is not exactly in your book, but I, I suspect that you know. But I suspect many of our readers or listeners don't know. And that's what is heroin?
0: Well, heroin is a. I mean, it derives obviously from opium poppies. That's that's the initial source, uh, and then opium poppies have to be uh, harvested. The the opium itself is then boiled to remove impurities that usually happens very close to the site of agricultural production uh, in the the post-World War II period that would have been in Turkey um, or in Lebanon, uh, now obviously in Afghanistan or Pakistan. And uh, once that happens, you've got a relatively stable substance uh, opium base that can be transported; it's it's relatively indestructible and can be stored for long periods of time. So it's a very stable substance. Uh, that in turn has to be processed chemically to be turned into morphine, and then the morphine has to be processed again to turn it into heroin. So. Heroin uh, is is like the the grandson of the opium poppy.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when was heroin first discovered? Who who invented heroin? Invented maybe that's the wrong word, synthesized or whatever. Synthesized, yeah. yeah.
0: It's uh, that's a, a really interesting question because the um, the anniversary for the creation of heroin was uh, the 100th anniversary was in, in 1998, and The creator was the Bayer Company, Mm -hmm. and Bayer thought that heroin would be the miracle drug of the 20th century. It turned out that they, in fact, created the miracle drug of the 20th century the following year, 1899, with Bayer Aspirin, which, you know, um, I don't know about you, but certainly was a mainstay of my youth and medical cabinet. Uh, So anyway, uh, heroin was was synthesized and and then promoted by Bayer as um, a response to morphinism. It was it was seen as a cure for people who were addicted to morphine, Mm -hmm. which, you know, ironically, if you were addicted to morphine and somebody gave you heroin, you would be perfectly happy. Uh, <laughs> it would solve any withdrawal symptoms because it's, it's a drug that is about, uh, estimates vary, but you know six to eight to ten times more powerful than morphine. And morphine itself is a fairly powerful drug. Mm-hmm. Medically, its use was as one of the few drugs that could um, soothe the racking coughs of people who were in the end stages of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So it had a very legitimate uh, medical use. Obviously, obviously it, it's, it's also an anesthetic, the same way that, that uh, morphine is. Um, and in, in some places still used as such, but it very quickly entered the underground market in uh, New York City. And uh, uh, gradually took over the underground market for opiate
1: drugs mm-hmm. yeah let 's talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the things you say in the book is that there was a kind of a historical gateway drug to uh, heroin, and it was it was opium and how did uh, opium and opium smoking originate, and then how did it get to uh, New York City in this case and then other American large cities? Well, opium
0: is rightly associated. With uh, Chinese populations, Chinese immigrant populations, although I should quickly add that uh, uh, opium was introduced into China by the British and the Americans who were concerned about a balance of trade problem. Basically, um, the British population, to a lesser extent Americans, were consuming large amounts of tea, uh, buying Chinese silk and porcelain, and this was creating a huge balance of trade uh, problem. And in order to try and uh, sell something back to the Chinese that could counterbalance our our importation of of their goods... uh, Opium became the logical answer. So there, there had been some opium smoking in coastal areas in China, m- usually opium mixed with tobacco. Uh, but opium as a kind of major drug gets introduced into the Chinese market by British and American uh, trading companies, and then uh, there are, they the two opium wars that were fought by the British in the mid-19th century basically blew open the market and uh, not only did opium pour in from India, but also uh, the Chinese began cultivating their own opium poppies. So by about 1900 or so, there were an estimated 40 million Chinese Opium smokers, mm-hmm. and as the Chinese emigrated to other parts of the world, they brought the practice of smoking opium with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, what's interesting about this is is that it was Chinese merchants who would essentially hold these Chinese migrants in in thrall. They they uh, paid for their passage to. Uh, in In this instance, the United States, and Chinese laborers would have to work off their debt. Uh, the merchants would supply them not only with goods at very high costs, with gambling dens with prostitutes but also with opium and so um, you know opium is the opiate of the masses it, <laughs> it, it really kept uh, people you know in debt and and working hard and um, uh, that was really the origins of opium smoking in the United States among the Chinese immigrant population mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the logical question then to ask is how does it spread from the Chinese to others mm-hmm. and the answer is that um, in the nineteenth century uh, in in western towns in American cities uh, there, there was a fairly um, public policy of tolerating vice and red light districts. But they were frequently um, spatially contained uh, so that you would have a specific red light district, say, in San Francisco or the, the, the Tenderloin area in New York City. Um, and These were coterminous with Chinatowns in in many instances, Mm -hmm. so that the practice of opium smoking began to spread gradually from the Chinese immigrant population to the white underworld. Mm -hmm. And so it was initially pickpockets and gamblers and uh, uh, pimps and prostitutes where uh, opium smoking Began to take off, and then gradually it it migrates out into um, a white ethnic working class population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by I would say about the eighteen nineties or so, you have um, white opium smoking populations in many American cities, mining towns, you know, places where you might not ordinarily expect. Uh, opium use, except for the fact that uh, there were originally Chinese migrant populations working in the mines or building the railroads or something like that and and so they they left the opium smoking practices behind
1: in those in those areas mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how How do we get from I was gonna say how do we get from opium in these populations opium to heroin? That's a slightly longer track
0: that takes. Almost a half a century to accomplish. In uh, 1908, the uh, United States prohibited the importation of smoking opium, and uh, therefore, importing opium be- became an you know uh, obviously an underground activity. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, it- It became much harder to get for persons outside the Chinese community uh, simply because, as is frequently the case in underground markets, ethnicity was used or race was used as a marker of trust. So that uh, Chinese would sell to other Chinese, but they were they were notoriously reluctant to sell to whites and whites, therefore. Uh, moved from in most parts of the United States, from moved from smoking opium to using morphine, which could be uh, uh, you know practices were relatively loose. You could you could go to a physician and get a and get a, a prescription for uh, morphine. Uh, there were a lot of over the counter uh, Mrs. Brown's soothing syrup <laughs> kinds of things that women would use for menstrual cramps, for example, that were largely opium and alcohol, um, those, those began to disappear with the Pure Food and Drug Act of, of 1906 and, and uh, better public information about the content of, of those kinds of medications. But morphine was available to... Um, more middle class populations that would go to doctors but then eventually it becomes um, available on the on the underground marketplace in most parts of the United States with the exception of New York City and the reason that um, New York was an exception is that heroin was um, outlawed in 1914 that is a uh, all narcotic drugs for non-medicinal purposes were outlawed in, in 1914. But heroin could continue to be used for medical purposes. And the pharmaceutical companies that manufactured heroin were all located in the New York City area. And so it's, it's one of these kind of fascinating um movements of drugs from a legal above-ground economy into an illicit underground economy that has happened again and again in our history. It happened with barbiturates in the 1950s. It's happening today with OxyContin, Mm -hmm. where the pharmaceutical companies are obviously interested in their market share. So they're producing large amounts of these drugs. And the question is, what happens to the excess? You know, what happens to the goods that are not absorbed by the medical market? And the answer is, in New York, in the 19-teens and 20s, those drugs began to appear in the underground economy. Mm-hmm. And so, in New York, and the New York metropolitan area, people moved from opium smoking to heroin using, and they more or less skipped the morphine stage, whereas in other parts of the country uh, as as opium disappeared, people began to use uh, morphine or if somebody was initiating opiate use in in New York, they would initiate it with um, heroin, whereas let's say in Chicago they might initiate it with morphine. And gradually between about the 1920s, And the post-war, immediate post-war period, um, heroin began then to gradually take over the market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I can explain why heroin does that because, and it has to do with with the economics of smuggling. Uh, As I as I mentioned earlier, um, heroin is is itself a derivative of morphine, and so heroin is. Kind of the ideal smuggler's uh, product because um, opium base itself, while it's relatively sturdy, is um, fairly large in volume. And so by converting opium base to morphine, you reduce the volume fairly dramatically. At the same time, since heroin is so much more powerful than morphine, You are, again, producing an item which uh, can be smuggled in very small, you know, a kilo or two kilo quantities. It can be hidden in a steamer trunk or in the panels of automobiles, as happened uh, uh, in the uh, 1930s and 40s, and... uh, Once it crosses the bottleneck created by customs uh, controls, it can be expanded in volume dramatically because it can be cut and still retain a very powerful impact on on the body. So heroin that comes directly out of the lab might be 90% pure. Uh, By the time it hits the streets, in let's say the early 1950s, you were talking about a drug that might have been 10 to 15 percent pure. So mm-hmm. it gets cut frequently on its way to the consumer, and that's obviously where where the profit lies. Mm-hmm. So it was it was much more uh, feasible for a smuggler to um, import heroin than to import either morphine or opium. And so heroin became the drug of choice if you were,
1: if you were, um, you know, an underground entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, uh, Let me ask this. At what point does heroin begin its long association with music and gain a kind of uh, cultural patina, a a kind of, mm, I don't know exactly how to call it, uh, but it it becomes part of a, a sort of, a sort of solid subculture.
0: Yeah. The the answer is, is with the rise of bebop in uh, the 1940s, Uh, when uh, let me let let me answer that question in a kind of long winded way, Mm is is my want Um, (laughs) the the there was a, a heroin shortage in the United States in the 1930s and 40s, because as soon as Japan invaded China, that completely disrupted the world um, uh, trading system in opiates. And so in uh, just to give you a sense of how um, rare heroin use was in the United States in the 1940s, Uh, The federal government, which had opened a narcotics hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, in 1937, was actually in discussion about closing it down in 1943, because there weren't enough heroin users to, to fill it up. So it came as a complete shock to people that young people, and specifically young African Americans, began using heroin in the immediate post-war period. And the reason that heroin was cool was because of its association with jazz musicians, with bebop players, with hustlers, with people in, in uh, nightlife. And what I show in my book is that um, in the so-called swing alley, of Midtown Manhattan, Fifty Fourth Street uh, between Fifth and Sixth Avenues, there were a large number of jazz clubs located in this in this in this one area. It was also uh, these jazz clubs had, during Prohibition, been speakeasies. So you have an initial association with mm-hmm. uh, the underworld, and of course, as Prohibition. Comes to an end in the United States in the you know after 1933, um, these guys are looking around to supplement their product line, and and heroin is the uh, obvious substitute for alcohol for illegal illegal alcohol, but it's stymied by the rise of World War II. So immediately after the war, you have larger. Uh, quantities of, uh, in this case, it was Italian-made heroin, uh, a major scandal, an Italian pharmaceutical company in association with uh, Italian organized crime figures in New York, uh, began uh, smuggling heroin into the port of New York, and that heroin was being... Sold in the jazz clubs around Swing Alley, and it became associated with uh bebop jazz musicians a uh, uh, very famous musician, Red Rodney said that heroin was the badge of their generation mm-hmm. you know if if you wanted to play bebop, if you wanted to be a cool cat on the cutting edge, heroin was the drug mm-hmm. and if you think about bebop as a, as a musical form, it's, it's kind of jarring. Uh, it's, it's, the, you know, it was a radical rejection of the big band swing era, the kind of easy listening kind of music. It was associated with a cultural style that embodied a kind of rejection of white mainstream America. So if you were going to be hip, whether you were white or black, but this was obviously more um, uh, of an issue for African-American adolescents. Uh, if you were going to be hip, if you were going to be cool, if you wanted to be like uh, these famous jazz musicians, heroin was was uh, the way to go about it. And uh, in the after-hours clubs, in the uh, places frequented by musicians, um Uh, there you would find a mixing of both young people and hustlers and organized crime figures and musicians. And that was really the origin of the kind of post-war jazz, cool uh, association with heroin. Probably the most famous um, bebop musician is Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if, 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 you can, you can sort of figure out the logic. Somebody says, well, gee, uh, here's Charlie Parker. He's the best saxophonist of his generation. I want to play the saxophone like Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker's a heroin user. If I want to play the sax like Charlie Parker, I need to, to use heroin. Uh, Parker himself was always very careful about trying to dissuade people from, uh, following his example. But I think it's a, you know, it's a good example of, uh, do what I say, not do what I do. Mm -hmm. And people saw what he did and they followed his, uh, his direction. Mm
1: -hmm. Was this the moment, I mean, immediately after the uh, second world war, was this the moment that the uh, demographics of heroin users became primarily, uh, African-American? That's right.
0: Uh, in the, in the first uh, part of the 20th century, heroin users were primarily white. They were um, ethnic Jews, Italians, Germans, Irish uh, in in New York City and Chicago. Eventually, in in other cities, but that was an aging demographic group. Uh, there was uh, as as African Americans moved to. American cities after World War one there was a slight expansion of heroin use but but nothing uh, particularly notable uh, until right after the war and that's when you have this major demographic transition where heroin users became much younger uh, they became much more african American and um, In New York City, there were larger numbers of Puerto Ricans. In the Southwest, larger numbers of Mexican-Americans. But it it was a a definite um, identifiable demographic population that was associated with the drug, young, male, and um, either either African-American or Latino. Mm
1: -hmm. I see. So at what point does the... Uh, attention of the nation, if I can put it that way, become focused on heroin use? Is it, is it after, it's immediately after World War II or a little bit later? It's a little bit
0: later, uh, but not not that much later. It was in the early uh, 1950s, between basically 1950 and about 1952, there is a heroin panic in the United States as suddenly, uh, people become concerned that heroin, which nobody, as I said, would have predicted, would have been a major problem in the U.S., seem to be making a comeback. Uh, and there is this wonderful irony in that all of the cultural productions of the period—the the heroin comic books, the popular. Uh, novels that were that were being promoted with a kind of really garish covers showing young women plunging needles into their arms with you know leering older guys uh peering over their shoulders um, they all focused on white teenagers and so when um este's kifaffer, the senator from Tennessee, who wanted to promote his candidacy for uh, the Democratic nomination for the presidency, began televised hearings into organized crime. Uh, He also had hearings into the the use of heroin. And he would um, bring before the committee's television lights uh, heroin users who were white. Mm-hmm. and get them to talk about or try to get them to talk about the, the pushers who would give out free samples and try to get uh, kids hooked on heroin. And then following Keefoffer's example, there were a number of both state and local um, investigations into heroin use where, again— uh, they would try and find kids to come and talk about how they uh, began using heroin. And what was wonderful uh, uh, from a historian's perspective about these uh, hearings is, uh, of course, in a everybody knows that these sorts of hearings are uh, like public dramas, right? <laughs> uh, and and it's it's all scripted. You never ask a question. Uh, for which you don't already know what the answer is going mm-hmm. to be. You carefully prepare all of your witnesses. And so these kids would would come on and uh, they, would, they would adhere to the script. So they, somebody would say, well, how did, you know, who gave you your first heroin? And they would say, oh, I was at a teen dance and some <laughs> guy came up to me and said, Pissed kid. You want to try something cool? I always wanted that to happen, but it never yeah. did at any of never my dances. Never happened to me. Never. Or, or in the local playground. Somebody would come up to you, you know, in a black trench coat. And, and of course, teenagers being the utterly obedient beings that they are, uh, they would immediately charge off to the men's room yeah. uh, where somebody would hand them a capsule and, and uh, they would be told to snort it. Uh, they would then snort it and then... Uh, From there, of course, uh, they would be immediately addicted to the drug. Mm -hmm. And it was only if you believed that using heroin once would immediately addict you that any of this made any sense at all. Because, you know, obviously, why is it a good business plan to give away stuff for free? How do you know that the kid that you're going to give some heroin to uh, isn't going to tell some adult or other, uh, how do you know that they will, uh, come back and, and purchase some more eventually, uh, people's initial response to heroin is usually that they get quite violently sick to their stomach. And so they have to be taught that this is a pleasurable experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so none of this cultural script made any sense whatsoever, but that was the cultural script that was being promoted at the time. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but the, um, the investigators who worked with Keefoffer and who worked with a lot of these investigations into, uh, the use of heroin were supplied by the federal Bureau of Narcotics and, As a result of the heroin scare of the 1950s, uh, Congress passed increasingly draconian legislation, the first uh, federal examples of kind of three strikes and you're out, uh, uh, mandatory imprisonment for people who uh, were were caught selling uh, uh, small amounts of heroin. And eventually in 1956, even if you were possessing, uh, small amounts of heroin, you could be sentenced for up to 20 years to life for a third-time conviction. So, uh, but these bills also included dramatic increases in the power of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, where narcotics agents began to be authorized to carry weapons, which they had never been authorized to do before. They could conduct wiretaps, which they had not been able to do before. And the commissioner of narcotics, Harry Anslinger, was uh, deeply jealous of the publicity given the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the you know the famous G-Men mm-hmm. who would go out and capture bank robbers and get all of the all of the press. And so he wanted to construct the Federal Bureau of Narcotics as an equally powerful agency to the FBI, one that was protecting American families from the evil uh, scourge of heroin. And the way that um, Harry Anslinger did this was by saying, look, heroin is being exported by the communist Chinese. Mm -hmm. This is a communist plot to subvert American liberty by addicting our youth. And so um, he would show up at the UN or before Congress with uh, packets with, you know, Chinese characters on them and saying, look, here's (laughs) proof that it's the communist Chinese who are uh, behind this conspiracy to import uh, heroin into the United States. Mm -hmm. And if you only give us uh, more power, et cetera, et cetera, then we will be able to fight off this fiendish red conspiracy to uh, destroy uh,
1: America's youth. I'm sorry to laugh. That's just very rich though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Especially the institutional angle where really it's institutional jealousy and competition that's driving this.
0: Well, uh, People don't really th- realize uh, this, I think. The is here is, is that um, the, the heroin that was on the world market that um, did, in fact, have Chinese lettering on it was not being produced by Mao Zedong's yeah. communist China, right? Mao was busy ruthlessly trying mm-hmm. to destroy opium production <clears throat> in China and, and and arrest Chinese opium smokers mm-hmm. and throw them in prison. Uh, it was the Chinese nationalists, mm-hmm. the Kuomintang, mm-hmm. who were... Uh, you know, uh, cold warriors hiding in Burma that uh, used uh, trafficking and heroin as a way to support their raids uh, into communist China. Mm-hmm. So it was actually our allies, the nationalist Chinese, who were introducing heroin into the world market rather than the communists. Mm-hmm.
1: So in the 1950s, the, um, these government agencies cook up this scenario in which uh, there's a guy in a black trench coat, usually a black guy, I suppose, who comes no, no, to... No, no, no. These are the, this is the mafia. Oh, the mafia. Okay.
0: The, the, other, the other side of this is because, you know, how how would Chinese heroin get to a drug pusher in a playground near you? I, I suppose they could have focused on the local Chinese hand laundry. But it was much more um,
1: insidious than that. It
0: they had a kind of General Motors, not not the bankrupt General Motors, yes. but the old right. fashioned yes. General Motors, Mark, the one
1: that made cars. Yeah, that's right, that one. <laughs>
0: uh, a, a kind of GM model of the mafia, where you had a board of directors and you had you know local affiliates in every single town throughout the United States. Well, if you that's the version of the mafia. That, um, that Anslinger promoted. And of course, to get to the institutional rivalry point, uh, Hoover was downplaying the existence of the mafia while um, Anslinger was playing it up. And so Anslinger saying, well, you know, these, these Italian pushers uh, headed by Lucky Luciano in Italy. Uh, were the people who were responsible for taking communist heroin and, uh, you know, supplying the American market with it.
1: Yeah. The the question I was trying to get at here was, um, really, how does acculturation into the world of hard drug use and heroin use actually happen? One of the things you point out in the book, and I think you're quite correct, is that this stuff really does sell itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. all of the evidence showed, and I'm glad you asked that question because, uh, since we've been talking about the pusher narrative, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, the contrast uh, it's actually can be found in the same hearings where, where once you get beyond the script, um, uh, they would they would talk to these pushers who would say, "Well, you know." Uh, I really didn't want to encounter new people. That's, you know, that's the way you get arrested. Uh, and then you talk to adolescents and you realize that uh, uh, heroin, the, the analogy I make in the book is, is it was like discovering this hot new record that uh, nobody else in the neighborhood had heard yet. And you wanted to go and play it for all of your friends. Mm-hmm. You wanted to invite everybody over to your house to sample it and to see what it was like and to share in, the, in this cool experience that, that only the hip elite right. knew about. And so heroin spread within peer groups. It certainly spread within schools. I mean uh, the investigators were not wrong in looking at schools. they were only wrong in thinking that it was grown ups hanging out in the playground uh, because it was it was you know the kids themselves um, basically tried to get heroin from their older brothers or from the older guys in the neighborhood, the hustlers who were um, using heroin and uh in the in the interviews that I found with um, heroin addicts from the forties and early fifties, uh, frequently these older users really tried to discourage the younger kids from getting on the drug, and the kids were you know insistent on trying it uh, so I to give a specific example here, um, uh one kid kept trying to get his, his older friend to let him try the drug. And, and the older friend kept saying, no, no, no. Until one day, the kid sees his friend, and he's drug sick. He's, he's heroin sick. And so uh, he wants to borrow some money. And the kid says to him, I'll give you the money, but you have to give me a taste of the drug mm-hmm. and so that's finally how he begins to use the drug so it was definitely a drug that that um uh circulated through pure groups uh and and from from you know one generation to the other in 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 that kind of a, a way and obviously once one kid became habituated to using the drug uh the easiest way to support your drug habit was to sell it. And so uh, there would then be a moment where somebody might, would, would, you know, begin selling to, to fellow um, adolescents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I, I, this is totally consistent with my experience, not as a drug user or a dealer, but I've worked with people that have substance abuse problems. And it's very frequently the case that they're uh, what they call their drug dealers are some of their best friends. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're just their buddies, you know, and they hang out all the time. And, uh, you know, they get brought into the business basically because they can't support their habit. And it goes through these lines of affinity in families and in, in peer groups. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's funny because in the, these guys that I've worked with, you know, that you go to the drugs, the drugs don't come to you. Right. So, well, yeah. The, the, the other thing is that, that um, I use the, the phrase in
0: the book drug knowledge that you had to have drug knowledge mm-hmm. in order to become a drug user. So, uh, you know, no offense to Iowa, but if you were a sax player in Iowa and you wanted to be like Charlie Parker, good luck in finding heroin.
1: Yeah, no, it'd be tough.
0: But but if you were a uh, an adolescent in, in Brooklyn, uh, the opportunity to acquire drug knowledge and eventually to acquire the drug itself – uh, was much more available to you. Mm-hmm. And basically you needed a peer to be an intermediary mm-hmm. because uh, the world of drug use was encoded in ritual and secrecy, not just for its own sake, but also uh, as a way of, of uh, protecting oneself You know, from penetration by agents. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, Some kid, you know, walking up. I mean, this changes over time. By by the 1970s, there were open-air drug markets Mm -hmm. in New York City. But at least initially, in the 1950s and 60s, that was not the case. And so you had to have an intermediary who knew the language, who knew the codes, who knew what to look for, who could convey a sense of being somebody who could be trusted. And who could therefore make a buy? And again, that's what shows how ridiculous those narratives
1: about pushers mm-hmm. that being promoted at the time were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Actually, you just mentioned um, the, uh, the the seventies, New York in the seventies, and I, I wondered uh, how uh, heroin and heroin trafficking contributed to. Uh, Increase in crime, and then an additional, another moral panic on the part of the American political elite in the 1970s.
0: Yes, the the increase in crime uh, and its association with heroin is is quite tangled because, uh, for example, in New York between uh, 1960 and 1970. Uh, homicides increased by about 400%, but there's absolutely no evidence that shows any link between homicide and heroin use. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know, it's uh, murder is not a drug user's crime. It, it, it became associated with the sort of wild crack cocaine market of the 1980s, mm-hmm. but not the heroin market of the nineteen fifties and sixties, which was much more carefully controlled. Now um, the the other crimes, however, that are associated with uh heroin use would be robbery, the 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 street mugging is kind of the quintessential uh nineteen seventies crime, and it is also The drug user's crime, because, again, it doesn't require a lot of skill. It just requires uh, some cojones, as as Mm -hmm. the Puerto Rican kids would say. You Mm -hmm. had to have some balls in order to be able to do this Mm -hmm. Um, or burglary or larceny from stores, you know, shoplifting, particularly women would would go on shoplifting expeditions uh, in order to support uh, their their drug habits. So there was clearly an association between drug use and crime but crime such as as murder which was going up at the same time, not in the same rate as these other kinds of crimes show that there's a, there's something else going on besides drug use so there 's a connection, but it 's not always a, a clear cut one
1: and what is that, what is that uh, something else that 's going on? This is one of the sort of fundamental points of the book that we shouldn 't just point at heroin, but a lot of other things you talk i 'm talking about these uh, these social settings that you talk about they 're right. created by you know so inadvertently in some ways by Different people pursuing different agendas, but they all add up to a place that makes it uh, really attractive and easy to do hard drugs.
0: Right. The the, the perfect setting for both uh, drug selling and drug using would be an abandoned building, uh, a place where you could have a stash stored someplace not on your person, where a user could come and... Uh, Uh, could be signaled to go and leave some cash someplace and then pick up the drug from a runner and then perhaps go to a shooting gallery where uh, he or she could uh, rent a set of works for a dollar and then shoot up um, in the shooting gallery and then leave without having to carry any drug paraphernalia, which would be uh, a source of, of arrest. And the question is you know where did these kinds of um abandoned structures flourish well the answer had to do with you know kind of a kind of a post-war history of the city uh on you have white flight occurring in the 1940s and 50s the you know the subsidized uh creation of all white suburbs that meant that middle and modestly Uh, working-class people could buy homes out in the suburbs and leave the old town behind at the same time that uh, African-American migrants were pouring into the city and uh, into neighborhoods that were bursting at the seams because they were surrounded by hostile white communities, that eventually those boundaries broke down as as whites began to leave. Um, And... So you have a kind of a, an initial process of densification that happens in the early 1950s because, uh, because it takes a while, obviously, for Americans American suburbs to kind of percolate away. But by the 1960 census, you see in virtually all American cities uh, a decline in uh, the white population, particularly white population of of families with, with children. Um, and At the same time, this is, of course, the period where American industry begins to migrate from uh, cities to suburban locations where uh, there's more space, there's less congestion, there are fewer taxes, you might not have labor unions to to deal with, and eventually to the south and and overseas. The process we call Mm -hmm. deindustrialization. Those kinds of processes culminate in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And uh, the South Bronx in New York, uh, parts of uh, North Philadelphia here in in Philadelphia, where I am now, uh, parts of Baltimore that were featured in The Wire, for those who Mm -hmm. might have seen that series. Um, These are, are neighborhoods that have been completely denuded of capital, where, uh, you have aging buildings and frequently the kind of the last resort of the building owner is to hire a junkie to set the building on fire mm-hmm. so that they can uh, get an insurance settlement and extract the last bit of capital uh, out of um, that location. And the net result of this is a landscape of low density uh, abandoned buildings or abandoned factories uh, that then provide a uh, cityscape in which uh, heroin selling and using can flourish. At the same time, um, the the loss of uh, blue-collar jobs uh, means that the drug industry is... Uh, kind of the free market's answer to the collapse of the legitimate marketplace in inner-city communities. And so it, it, it's the drug market, uh, and this is where you have the the gradual appearance of open-air markets, it's the, the, the drug market that begins to supply uh, needed jobs um, in these communities. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the passage of increasingly severe um, uh, anti-drug laws means that uh, people who are involved in the drug trade need to find um, adolescents to man the stations. Mm-hmm. You know, to to actually take the risk of standing out on a street corner. And being a tout, as it was called. Somebody would call to somebody and say, hey, you know, you want to buy some drugs, or who would be a lookout or something along those lines, because kids would be brought into juvenile court and uh, may be sentenced to probation or something like that, but would not suffer the very severe consequences that an adult drug seller might. Mm-hmm. uh suffer so it became a way of recruiting kids into the drug selling networks, and then ultimately uh those kids, even though they had first hand knowledge of what um uh drug use meant uh they became logical consumers uh, mm-hmm. as well
1: mm-hmm. i see um in the midst of all of this, in the late 60s and early 70s, something happens which I, I want to talk about. And just to set the scene, and these are my words, not yours, uh, the uh, inner city is aflame. It has become uh, predominantly and even overwhelmingly poor and black. And there is um, a kind of epidemic, if that's not too strong a word, of hard drug use. And it has caused a tremendous, or it is related to a tremendous increase in crime. So it seems like all of the phenomena that are associated with heroin use circa uh, 1970 are negative it's almost right at this time that heroin use becomes very chic among uh, a certain class of white kids um yes. and, and this is something i that actually touched my own life I'm, I'm 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 a little bit younger than that but i kind of remember and i'm thinking particularly of of uh, of, of the Velvet Underground again, and these other bands. It becomes associated with white rock and roll, or what we would later call indie rock. And, and, and this is the second time this has happened. It happened first with jazz around, you know, 1945. And now it's happened again with another kind of music and another cohort. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. Um, I... There is something to the cultural explanation, but I want to backtrack a moment from that and and say that my... Um, explanation for it is largely spatial. That is to say that um, if you look at the heroin use epicenters on the east and the west coast, that would have been the East Village in -hmm. New York City, and it would have been Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. And um, these were areas... I, the, I have a statistic in the book that the New York City police estimated that there were 1,000 runaways a month coming into New York, moving into the East Village. Mm-hmm. And they were ripe for recruitment into a drug subculture that initially was focused largely on, on marijuana. But um, again, if you, if you look back at the 1950s, and at the um, the marijuana scares of the 1950s, the sort of reefer madness, you know, uh, you start smoking <laughs> marijuana, you're going to wind up grabbing an axe and murdering <laughs> your parents in the middle of the night sort of thing. Uh, well, of course, nobody believed that right. uh, because their firsthand experience showed that it simply wasn't true. And so... If the government is lying about the um, uh, the ill effects of marijuana use, why should they believe, be believed about anything else? Mm-hmm. And so you have a kind of a uh, adolescent drug culture that valorizes drug use, that valorizes the use of marijuana, the use of LSD, and. Um, you have adolescents moving into communities where that kind of drug use, speed, for example, in the in the in the late '60s as well, um, is is being promoted by one's peers, and these communities are spatially located near old-fashioned heroin-using communities as well, and so you have a kind of mingling of of drug cultures in these spatial. Locations. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that um, you know um, uh, you could uh, get a a sort of a poor man's speedball by mixing uh, speed and heroin. Uh, The 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 you know rich person's way of doing that would be to mix cocaine and heroin and inject it. But um, uh, the fact that that speed became a very popular drug. In 1968, 69, 70, um, heroin was a way of coming down from the multi-day, very jagged uh, experience of using speed. So people, and speed frequently was injected. So people overcame the initial, um, you know, barrier of, of using an IV needle. Uh, so all of that allows a, um, spread of, of heroin into, uh, white communities. Now, and the fact that, that, you know, Janis Joplin is a heroin user, that various other people in the jazz, sorry, the rock and roll scene are are using heroin, um, doesn't, doesn't help the matter. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I focus on space as I did with the, um, you know, the Charlie Parker example, Because drug use has to happen at a specific location that mixes novices and experienced
1: users. It doesn't. It doesn't happen in your head. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. So we've taken up a lot of your time, but you know, I want to go on for just another moment. I want to ask another question. Uh, Heroin use. Just to kind of complete the narrative, heroin use falls out of fashion. Um, how, how does that happen? It does, but I, I need to bring up one okay, thing you before go ahead. we go there. Yeah. Uh, because
0: I think one of the most important points that I make in the book has to do with heroin use and the Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why Richard Nixon declared the first war on drugs in 1971 was because he was terrified that all of these... Uh, Vietnam vets were going to come home and fuel the drug and crime uh, 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 epidemic that we've been that we've been talking about, and therefore he declares war on drugs. But that war includes significant expansion of methadone for the first time in the United States as a way of maintaining somebody on a drug that does not require illegal activity in order to um, get access to it. And the idea was that um, there would be treatment for these Vietnam vets who were coming home um, addicted to the drug. The uh, congressional investigations at the time showed that maybe as many as 20 to 25 percent of American soldiers in Vietnam were using heroin regularly in 1970 and 71. Mm-hmm. This is the big heroin epidemic that doesn't happen. Because what happens when these vets leave Vietnam is that they stop using heroin. Mm-hmm. You take them out of the social setting, the stress of combat, the boredom of you know, waiting around, the 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 incredibly pure drug that they used along with uh, they mates, if you will, in the in the platoon and you get them back in the United States and they're out of the war. And, you know, uh, it, many of them suffering from PTSD and they have problems with alcohol and other things, but they don't use heroin. And so it's an important point to make because our current narrative of drugs is so driven by biology, by the idea that that addiction is a brain disease that once you have it you, you'll you're not gonna get off it. And the Vietnam vets are a powerful contrary example showing the importance of social setting. That if you change the social setting in which people live, you can you can reduce drug
1: use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's a very good point. Let's let's move on then to this question I ask about heroin falling out of fashion. How, how does that transpire? The um, what happens in the in the
0: nineteen uh, eighties is that. New York loses its place as the kind of principal um, import center for heroin. Um, and you have the development of new sources of supply in Southeast Asia, in Mexico, um, and with those new sources of supply, you have new entrepreneurs who are are um, frequently um, in the East Coast. They're Cuban. Um, on the West Coast, they're African American as well as uh, Mexican American. Uh, in uh, Chicago, they're largely Mexican, um, and they're bringing in new sources of heroin, which you know drops the price. They're bringing in. Cocaine For the first time in large amounts, which dramatically drops the price of cocaine uh, until somebody has this brilliant idea of uh, taking cocaine, uh, cleaning out the impurities and turning it into this new drug crack, which can be sold in very small uh, doses and, and you make your money on volume rather than on, uh, price. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the, the, the heroin epidemic of the 1970s is kind of superseded by crack cocaine in the 1980s. It's not that heroin disappears. Uh, you know, the, the heroin, heroin use moves in waves and you have a cohort that, Becomes addicted to the drug. You have a larger number of users who don't become addicted to the drug, who may use it once in a while, uh, experiment with it, and then decide, okay, this Mm -hmm. is enough. I'm I'm not going to do this anymore. But you have this, this cohort of people who do become addicted, who move through time and age. And then the question is are they going to attract new users? Or are is is use going to dry up? Mm-hmm. And what happens in the nineteen eighties is that the the people who um, you know the adolescents who ordinarily might have been attracted to using heroin become attracted to using cocaine mm-hmm. instead. And so it's it's a it's a, a switch in drugs. Uh, but the marketing, the location of the inner city drug markets. Uh, as a kind of principal economic engine of, of um, uh, some inner-city communities, that remains the same. It's just that the product line begins to shift. Mm-hmm. I see.
1: So uh, my final question about heroin is uh, where do we stand with heroin today? Who uses it, and what are the penalties for using it, and is there more or less of it coming in, and where does it come from, and that sort of thing? Right. Um,
0: well, one of the reasons why... I think a war on drugs that's focused on supply is utterly futile is because if you look at the sources of supply, they shift incredibly dramatically over time from, uh, you know, from Turkey to uh, Southeast Asia to uh, Central and South America, Uh, Now we're back at the Golden Crescent in in Afghanistan. Uh, Wherever you have political instability, you're going to have uh, drug trading because it's such a ready source of, um, you know, monetary supply for for rebel armies, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, be they of the left or the right. Uh, So, you know, right now. Uh, the principal producer of, of heroin in the world is Afghanistan, uh, uh, and large uh, supplies of that are, are making their way into Western Europe. Um, and heroin, I think, remains a drug of the young, the alienated, uh, people who are marginalized socially, economically, politically. Uh, that's why you find its use soaring in the states of the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Uh as, as well as in, in other parts of, of, of Europe. Um, and if anything suggests the futility of the war on drugs, uh, in North Philadelphia today, I know a drug uh, shooting spot where you can buy a $10 packet of heroin that's anywhere from 40 to 70% heroin. Uh, if you had bought a ten dollar packet of heroin on the streets in North Philadelphia in nineteen sixty five you'd be buying a drug that was maybe five to ten percent mm-hmm. heroin mm-hmm. so it is purer and more readily available um, than uh, it, it has been in the past uh, the drug here is largely from uh South America. I I don't think we're seeing large amounts of Afghani heroin, although that that certainly could change. Uh, It's a very real question of you know what will the impact of of having U.S. troops in that part of the world be? Given that in the 1960s, American troops coming home from Vietnam began a supply pipeline into the United States, Mm -hmm. so it seems logical that uh, uh, we might be facing a very similar kind of, of threat in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, because the drug is so pure, uh, lots of uh, more middle class people are, are using the drug. Uh, it's smokable. Uh, so you don't have to uh, inject it. Uh, a lot of people don't like needles, me included. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can snort the drug, although eventually your nasal cartilage will fall out, and uh, <laughs> that's that's not a pleasant thing. No. Uh, so you know, there the heroin is one of those drugs that I, I think um, probably will always retain its dark allure mm-hmm. as, as something who want to, you know, that people who want to um, flirt with the dark side can do. And some percentage of those people will, will become the ad- the addicts mm-hmm. of the, of the next generation. Mm-hmm. I see.
1: Well, Eric, it's a terrific book and thank you very much for talking with us today. I want to close the interview, if I may, with a, our traditional final question on new books in history. And that is, what are you working on now? Um,
0: my my kids uh, were um, great Star Wars fans. Mm-hmm. And when I told my younger son uh, the kinds of projects I've done, you know, juvenile delinquency, street gangs, heroin <laughs> use, um, he said to me in his best uh, Darth Vader imitation voice, you know, dad, you're a historian of the dark side. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've come to embrace my destiny. And uh, I'm now doing a project on the history of homicide wow. uh, in Philadelphia from the 1940s uh, to the 1990s, trying to figure out why Philadelphia has such a
1: persistently high homicide rate over that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's a, it sounds like a terrific project, and um, I hope that when you're done with it, you'll come on the show. Well, I hope you invite me back. I absolutely will. We've been talking with uh, Eric Schneider today about his book, Smack, Heroin in the American City. Eric, I want to say thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Schneider about his new book, Smack, Heroin in the American City. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.